three men on three wooden crosses, a scene of death. One of the most famous scenes in all of history, I would imagine, even if you're not a Christian, you probably know that Jesus of Nazareth, the center of Christianity, was crucified um, with one man on either side of him, a thief on either side of him. All three of them died, and all of us are going to die one day. And we might think of that as the end. That is typically how death is considered in our culture and by us, ourselves. But Christianity tells us something different, something better. In his letter to the Christians in the region of Ephesus, and this is the letter that we're studying this year, the Apostle Paul describes our present lives as death. Death isn't just something that's going to happen. He says, we're already dead. And as he does so, he gives us an insight into why the world is in the state that it is and why we are in the state that we are. Why, after thousands of years of civilization, do we still make the same mistakes that humans have always made? Why do the best solutions that we propose and systems that we create and our own personal best efforts, why do these things fail so often? And why, even when life is better for most people than it ever has been in history, do we still find fresh ways of making a mess of it? Why is it that even our new inventions become new ways of making our lives worse, even as they bring benefit as well? Why are human beings like that? Why is the world like that? Well, Paul's going to show us today that it is a problem more profound and inescapable than all the experts, politicians, educators, entrepreneurs, medics, counsellors, theorists and priests could ever possibly attempt to solve. Paul is going to paint a very dark portrait, a scene of death, to help us see things as they really are and to see ourselves as we really are. And I'm going to describe that at some length this morning and it's going to feel pretty intense. But this doesn't have to be the end of the story. Because this story has a turning point so sudden, so dramatic, it will give you whiplash if you're not paying attention. In fact, the chances are, after we've described the darkness, the light that's going to follow, you're not going to be ready for it. You're going to still be, you're going to still be stuck in where we were talking about a few minutes before because God has moved things on very suddenly. That's what happens in Ephesians chapter 2, and so that's what we're going to read from this morning. Starting in verse 1, here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Two scenes. One of death and one of life. We're going to start with death. The Bible uses a lot of uh, picture language to help us understand what life is like without God, to help us understand who we are. It talks about us being blind. It talks about us being lost. It talks about us being imprisoned and being enslaved. But the language Paul uses here is the most dramatic that there is. He says that we are all dead. And I'm going to use we all the way through this because although there's a change coming, this is how we all are. This is how everyone starts out in life. We're all dead, Paul says. If you're a fan of uh, zombie apocalypse TV shows, you will have heard of The Walking Dead. And Paul says that is basically what everyone is. Now, why does he say that, given that clearly we are physically alive? I'm breathing, you're breathing, you're thinking, mostly you're, active, you're, you're alive. And yet Paul says you're dead. Why is that? Well, it's because we are spiritually dead. Everyone, as they are born and grow up, are like this. They're spiritually dead. Spiritual death is separation from God. And this comes through what Paul calls our trespasses and sins. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Your life, he says, was death. See, if God is the giver of life, to ignore him, to reject him, to replace him, to rebel against him, is to ask for death, is to bring death upon yourself. you're a deep sea diver and you get fed up with the awkwardness of this oxygen tank on your back and this mask that you're supposed to have you say I just don't need those let me get rid of those well at scores of feet down death will follow if someone offers you good food and drink like Amal was saying in that reading earlier but you reject them for mud and bleach you will not last long if you pick fights with bears or lions you will fatally lose And all of us, Paul says, do this. We put our hope in other things, in people, in causes, maybe in money and success, in uh, religions. And we look to these things for purpose and for happiness. We think, if I get that thing, if only that would happen in my life, I will be happy, I will have meaning, my life will be how I want it to be. If I've got that, I'll be okay. We make sacrifices to achieve these things. Think, oh, it's difficult, it's a shame, I can't do that. But I want this to happen, and so other things have to go by the wayside. We make sacrifices for those things. They set the direction of our life. The uh, the decisions that we make, uh, they determine our way of thinking. They set the actions that we do. When you're making choices, what determines the choices you make is a great indicator of who you're focusing on and what you're all about. And Paul says, all of us do this independently of God. In fact, we don't need Paul to tell us that, because we know it. 
We know this is how we live. We know that we're not spending all of our time thinking about God, working out how to do what is right, working out how to follow him and to love him and to obey him. Our lives are lived in pursuit of our own ends and independent from him. And so how moral they are is irrelevant when that's the case. You may live a very seemingly good life by the, you know, you're nice to other people and all that kind of thing. But if you are ignoring the giver of life, if you're doing that for your own reasons or for things other than for him, you are still in mortal trouble. Church tradition uh, listed seven sins as deadly. They're all deadly. There is no sin that does not bring death. Because spiritual death leads to physical death. John Piper comments that the horror of death is God's appointed response to human sin. Death by God's design is the mirror of the moral outrage of human rebellion against God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. It's what we get for what we've done. We are dead spiritually, so we will die physically with a walking dead. And as part of this deathly experience, we're also dead in terms of how we respond to God. We are as responsive to him as a corpse is. And that's why when some of you are hearing hearing this right now, you're like, this guy sounds miserable, this, I don't. Really? This this isn't my experience. I don't think it's true. The Bible says, of course you think that way. You're spiritually dead to the truth. All of us have been that way. If you became a Christian in, say, your your teenage years or or later, you will have known there are periods of time you think, I don't believe this is true. I don't think that what I'm being told is right. You're dead to those things. Dead in every way. And with death to come. And Paul's only just getting started on what's wrong. Because he says that not only do we live this deathly way as individuals, but we create societies in opposition to God as well. You take a lot of people who are dead to God and they will make a culture that is dead to God as well. He describes it as the course of the world. It could be translated as the world age in which we live. We live lives of death and we encourage everyone around us to do the same as well. God is marginalised, he's mocked, he's replaced. And this is so prevalent, so total to our experience that we hardly notice that we're in a polluted world inhaling noxious fumes and urging others to do so as well. This is the world that we were born into. So it's not entirely our fault that we don't notice this, it's not entirely our fault that we don't that we don't recognise it and, and can't think of any other way to live other than this. We may have been twisted in certain ways by other people. But it's our instinct to be this way nevertheless. Left to our own devices, even in a perfect scenario, this is how we would have turned. And we have turned. And how we turn others as well. It's how we are, it's how we would be, and so it's how the world is. And then Paul says that whether we or the cultures that we create are conscious of this or not, there is also a personal force opposed to God at work in all of this as well. The prince of the power of the air, Paul says, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Western people tend to reject any talk of the devil as being kind of a weird superstition, something that we've left in the past, thank goodness. But there is an evil and malice at work which seems beyond even the inventions of sinful men and women. I don't think there's any better explanation, and it's what the Bible says anyway. The 19th century uh, French poet Charles Baudelaire was paraphrased in the film The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. He's real, and he's powerful, and he's at work. And so this is the situation that we are in, dead inside ourselves, dead in the society that we create, and with death encouraged all the time. Deep darkness in us and around us. And working against us. Death everywhere. This is why things are in such a mess. This is why things are as they are. And always will be. You often hear people say, if we just do this, if we just get this sorted out, if we just make that happen, then it will be okay. It will never be okay. It will never be okay whilst people like you and me are in the world. People who are spiritually dead, people who have rejected God and are therefore taking only what's wrong, only what's bad and living death and creating cultures of death. And this is why we can't trust our instincts. And this is why we can't trust the direction of our culture. So when we say things, when we maybe read things in God's word, when you hear Christians explain to you what they believe, you think, well, it doesn't feel right to me. Or no one else seems to be saying this. Well, of course they're not saying it. Of course they don't think it. They're dead. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust the culture of the world that we live in. This is why, just as an aside, godly parenting and education and lawmaking are so important. Because we don't know these things. We have to have them told. What is God's response to this? How how does he reply to what we've done and who we are? Paul says that we are children of wrath. John Stott defines God's wrath as his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In our deluded, spiritually dead state, when we think about this, we think, hmm, maybe God's a bit grumpy. Maybe he's just a bit tired. Maybe he's a bit hangry like some of us get sometimes. I don't know, why, why would he be like this? I mean, I'm kind of okay, really, aren't I? People are kind of okay, really, aren't they? Isn't this a fault of his character? This way of thinking, which we all experience, just proves how spiritually dead we are, how far from understanding him we are. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf put it like this. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 
According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And when we lay the logic out like that, it becomes harder to argue with it. And we nod. We think, yes, those were terrible things. What those people over there did were terrible things. And we refuse to see ourselves as involved in the same type of opposition to God. Don't deceive yourself, says Paul. You're only different in degree. We all rebel against God. We all hurt others along the way in doing so. Jesus said that a lustful or a violent thought was as deadly to you, to the person doing it, as adultery or murder. They still involve a disrespect of those who are made in the image of God and they still bring the anger of God upon us. And so our lies and hypocrisies, be they ever so small, our laziness and our selfishness, our perverting of God's good gifts, all these things bring the wrath of God righteously fairly our way. It will be revealed fully when we die. Steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising. Deuteronomy 7 verse 10 says, God repays to their face those who hate him. And that's all of us. And a living death, much worse than today's, will be our just deserts. This has been a dark description. I haven't given any space to the fact that there is so much that is good in God's creation. We're ruining it as best we can, but it still still bears his handiwork haven't said that obviously all people are made in the image of God and so do have intrinsically within them some beauty and plenty of worth. Those things are true, but that's not where Paul wants us to focus today. And to be honest, I think we tend to think about those things a lot and this stuff very rarely. We'd rather ignore it, we prefer it wasn't the case, or maybe we just deny it is actually how things are. But Paul wants us to see these bleak truths clearly. He wants us to be realistic about who we are and what the world is like. We must feel the force of our guilt, face the reality of our sinfulness and realise the spiritual death that we are walking in. 
Remember that what Paul said about us is true of all of us. There's no place for moral superiority here. Yeah, there's no sense of the Christians being like, you're like that, but we're like this, or any other kind of religion. There's no hierarchy here. Paul says, we all did this. And we all do this. The prophet Isaiah said, woe is me, I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. One of the thieves on the cross next to Jesus, he got it right. He said, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Do you have this sober assessment of yourself without God? It's, I mean, it's really hopeless. It's not pretty hopeless. It's not, we weren't drowning. We weren't sick. We weren't confused. We were dead. Now, whatever you do, don't leave now. (laughs) Because here comes the whiplash moment. Here comes the change so rapid. You might, you may not even be able to cope with it. It's so fast. We have stared at a scene of death, considered ourselves, considered our world, and seen death everywhere. And Paul says, that's what it was like. You were dead. The world is dead. There's an enemy who hates God. But in Christianity, death need not be the end. Six letters, two words, the turning point, hope, into all this darkness, but God. But God, knowing all of this about you. In fact, knowing all of it about you much, much more accurately than you know yourself. We all self-deceive, don't we? We all say ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I've forgotten about those things. God knows all of it. He knows exactly all of it. And his standard of judgment is his holiness, not our compromise. So he's far more aware of how bad you are, how bad we are. He knows your faults. He knows your failures. He knows your idiocies. He knows your idolatry. He knows the things you've done that are stupid. He knows the things you've done that are evil. He knows all of this much more. And he knew what it would take to change this situation and what it would cost to rescue us from this. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, Paul says it again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, what might he do with those who have rebelled against him? What might he do with those who have hated him and encouraged others to do so? so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Bang, like that. That's how sudden this turnaround is. What happened? Well, Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. A corpse can't do anything. A corpse is completely hopeless, completely lifeless. But God can bring the dead to life. God unites us with Jesus so that what is true of him can be true of us as well. 
Jesus lived perfectly. He never sinned. He was never tainted by the world, even though he lived in it. He was never tricked by the devil, even though he was the most oppressed person there ever was. He brought God's light and life everywhere he went. He died sacrificially in our place, taking all the condemnation for what we've done. He was raised to new life, to break open a way that we could have access to God. And he returned to heaven and reigns with God in all authority from where he works these but God moments in men and women around the world. That's what Jesus has done and all that is good about that and all that is right about that and all that we need from that, God is happy to give to us. He puts his life into our dead bodies. You were spiritually dead. God will give you spiritual life. This isn't like when we see a medical drama and someone's linked up to the heart rate machine and the, 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 the thing is going down and going down and then suddenly uh, it goes flat. They flatline, they're dead and they get the defib and they shock the person and then oh, suddenly the heart, the heart responds just slightly and slowly the person recovers. That is not what happened? It's not what happens to us. Bang! A new heart where once there was a dead heart. What was dead and cold and lifeless is replaced with something new. There's new life and suddenly there's new life-giving blood being pumped around this former corpse and new life begins. This is what God has done. We needed raising to new life. We didn't need some medicine to get us better. We needed a new heart. And God gave it to us. And what he starts in us with this new heart, he will finish. He will bring to completion in the ages to come. We are now being transformed into his likeness because it's his life going through us now. That's why when you're a Christian, you should over time find yourself becoming more like Jesus because there's less of you and more of him. Therefore, it's a life of delighted obedience to God, where before we were resistant to him, now we want to follow him. Whereas before we were thinking of ourselves, now we're thinking of him and we're thinking of others. It begins now. It will be completed on a day to come when what is spiritually true of us right now, that we have been raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places with God, that's a spiritual reality for Christians. One day that will be their physical reality as well. We will probably pass through death to get to that point because that's still how it is in the world as it is. But death is no longer an enemy to be feared. Jesus has totally triumphed over it. It is just the door into the fullness of what God has won for us. Instead of punishment from God and exile from every good thing that he's made, we will be with him in a renewed creation This life and this world transformed and and cleansed and renewed and with God everywhere. And that's where Christians will be. That's where those who have put their trust in Jesus will be. It is a total change from the life of death that we were born into. Which is amazing. Why did God do this? Paul's pretty clear. He painted a pretty dark picture, didn't he? There was nothing creditable about us. We were in a total mess, dead 
and unresponsive to God. We were unable to help ourselves. The only thing we were any good at was making it worse. That was our condition. You, you weren't cute to God. There wasn't something in you that was attractive to him. But he is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And God has loads of it. He's rich in it. He's got an abundance of it. He has so much of it. The old preacher Richard Stibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That is great news. That's great news because it means the account will never run out on our, on our part. There's no way that you can out-sin the mercy of God. There's nothing you can do that's so bad that God doesn't have more than enough mercy to deal with it. He is rich in mercy. And so he's still perfectly just and fair. He credits what he did wrong to his son instead. And he's happy to do this. I think sometimes we think of God as being like a reluctant saviour or a kind of grim father who's like, oh gosh, you've made such a mess of it. Fine, I'll bail you out again. He's not like that. Paul says he enjoys this. It brings him pleasure. It delights his heart to forgive you. And he loves us. He loves us with a great love. I mean, I don't know about you, I'd accept being loved by a very low level of love if it was from God. I think it would be sufficient. But he loves us with a great love. He's got loads of this too. Not just for his son who deserves it, but for all of us who don't. He's not an indulgent parent who ignores our faults. He knows them all. And so he sent his son to die for them. And he disciplines us because nothing will stop him from pouring out his love on us. It's all about grace, Paul says, and Dan's going to speak more about that next week. But every preach we've had in this series has been about grace. All the time you're seeing things that you don't deserve being given to you. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve. Grace is you get what you don't deserve. God gives us both. We will be seated on high with him. We will be welcomed in to the presence of God. He'll be thrilled to see you. No wonder Paul calls it the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. You cannot get a tape around this. You cannot put this on a scale. You cannot ever find its limit, for it has none. This is such good news, twice over. Firstly, it tells us there is a way out of this deadly mess that we've made of everything. There is hope. Darkness can be flooded with light. The dead can be filled with new life. But here's the better thing. Because what you'd expect at most point and what most religions and worldviews would say, and here's how you do it. And Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity says, he has done it for you. You are hopeless. He's done it. It's not about you being good enough to impress him. It's not about you making amends for the mistakes that you've done in your past or anything like that. It's not about you. It's about his mercy, his love, his kindness, his grace. In the first scene, I said that we are all in desperate trouble. 
And in this second scene, I've said that any of us can know this wonderful life. How? Surely that's the key question. How does this happen? Let's go back to those three crosses. Jesus and the two thieves. Both thieves died, but in very different circumstances. I quoted one of them earlier. He realised, he said, we're, he said to his other thief, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're getting what we deserve. And then with nothing to offer and nowhere to go, he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was spiritually dead. Soon he would be physically dead. But God, but God, in those last moments, Jesus turned to him. And in Jesus' own moment of greatest weakness and agony, recognizing that what he was doing at that point was for exactly those like that hopeless dying thief, turns to him and says to him, truly, (laughs) truly, I say to you, I mean, it's always true when Jesus says it, but when he says truly, he wants you really to believe it. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Like that. From death to life in an instant. He's, the guy has barely said a line. But what he's done in that moment is he's put his trust in Jesus and not himself. He's reached out to Jesus and asked him to save him. And Jesus says, yes, done, done. It's enough. What I've done is enough for this to be true. It's enough for this to be happen. Enough for this to happen. He proves those words that he said earlier in John's gospel that have been proved millions of times since. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Two thieves died alongside Jesus that day. One of them never left his side again. All of us are like one or the other of those two. All that it takes to be taken from living a life of spiritual death now and eternal death to come is to put your trust in Jesus, is to hope in him. And do you know what? Even that, he gives you the life you need to do it. This is our, this is our story. This is our reality. This is what life is like. And if you're a Christian, this is the full picture. And this can be true for you too. If you're already a Christian, I just want to say, don't take this for granted. Don't, don't think that this was some small light thing. Don't think that you were in a bit of a mess and then God gave you some help. No, you were dead. He's made you alive. It's that extreme. It's that severe. It's that clear cut. It's that dramatic. Maybe you were brought up by uh, Christian parents or carers and they told you about Jesus and you believed it very early on. 
And so you've never had what feels like a dramatic story. You've never had things go awfully wrong that you've seen other people do. Well, the difference is they just got the chance that you didn't have. You would have been as bad. And even so, you were dead. Now you're alive. There's nothing more dramatic than that. There's, no, there's nothing that can be more than that. There's no one whose story is more dead and more alive. All of us are like this. Don't allow foolish pride to convince you there was any moral superiority in you. Don't let that happen over time. It does. You see it around Christians all over the place. They're like, look at those people over there. Aren't they awful? Of course they're awful. They're dead in their sins. So were you. So would you be if Jesus hadn't interrupted your life? And we all think that way. Christians, we all think that way sometimes because we've forgotten this. And the equal and opposite fault is to not really believe it. Some people don't really believe the badness enough. Some people don't really believe the goodness enough. You think there's still some things that aren't dealt with. There's still some things I need to make up. There's still some things I need to fix. God says, no, there isn't. He has done it Oh, don't think you're too bad for God to really love you. He knows you better than you know yourself and has done all this for you. Timothy Keller says, we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could ever dream. Let's be certain of both parts of that statement and rejoice that God has brought us from death to life. And don't let anything else define for you the goodness and the love of God. Because plenty of other things will happen. Plenty of other things will come your way. And you'll be tempted in that moment to define God by those things. This happened. This didn't happen. My expectations were met. My expectations weren't met. Those are the, so often we think, by those things I'll say, well, therefore God is good or not. God exists or not. And the Bible says, don't do that. This is how you know who God is and what he's like and what he thinks of you. That though you were dead, yet he made you alive. And having applied it to ourselves, let's apply this truth in patient hope to all those around us too. We live in a world of death, but we have the words of life. Let's make sure we share them and be used by God in his amazing work of bringing the spiritually dead into spiritual life.